Congratulations. Congratulations, America. According to people who keep track of these things, America just passed its 400th mass shooting this year, which means with 2023 just halfway over, fingers crossed when it comes to gun deaths, we're on track to making this the deadliest year on record. Congratulations, America. This is what we try. This is what we try for in a small town, right? I'm from a big town these days, New York City. Jason Aldean, country star. You know what you should try in a small town? Algebra. Try it. Try that in your small town. When did willful ignorance become a career choice? Watch the music video for Try That in a Small Town, Jason Aldean. It's a pro-gun, anti-Black Lives Matter, racist, pro-cop, authoritarian homage to white nationalism and, of course, fascism. I know that because Ted Nugent says he loves it. It's a celebration of white pride and ignorance, perpetuating the big lie that the police were innocent bystanders, bystanders in the protests following the murder of George Floyd. The big lie that Black Lives Matter and Antifa were responsible for the looting and violence, when in fact every single study shows the Black Lives Matter protests were peaceful until the police showed up. The looting was done by outside agitators, white people, cops, and guess what? Antifa doesn't exist. I'm going to keep repeating this. Christopher Wray, the head of the FBI, a Republican, testified under oath before Congress that Antifa doesn't exist. It's an ideology. Somebody, maybe maybe this, this Jason Aldean, I would love it. If you could uh, give me somebody from Black Lives Matter who was an analog to Kyle Rittenhouse, that doesn't exist. There's nobody from Black Lives Matter who showed up with AR-15s and shot, killed two people, injured one. So Jason Aldean is a POS. You know, I'm born in New York, live in Manhattan. But I was raised in a small town in Jersey. And Jason Aldean, you're not singing about the small town I grew up in. You're singing about a you're singing about a very specific small town, Jason Aldean. And, you know, I know the rules. I'm a blue state coastal elitist. So I'm supposed to, you know, patronize you, feel sorry for you, and not lord our superiority over you, because then, you know, we're afraid you're going to go off clinging to your flag, your guns, and religion. Thing is, I'm too old. I'm not running for office. So let me just tell Jason Aldean and his fans, we all know exactly what small town Jason Aldean is singing about. It's a small town in Oklahoma, Arkansas, Mississippi, Alabama, Missouri, where it's all white. 
That's the small town Jason Aldean is singing about. Now, objectively speaking, and I know I'm going to push some people away by saying this, but it's the truth. Objectively speaking, by all yardsticks, life expectancy, infant mortality, drug use, drug overdoses, traffic fatalities, education level, by all yardsticks, the small town Jason Aldean is singing about is infinitely inferior by all measures to the small town I grew up in and that most Americans grew up in. It's why Jason Aldean and his fans are so racist and angry and homophobic and, of course, out of shape. It's why they cling to their guns, their flag and religion, because that's all they have. They have nothing because they are nothing. They are physically, intellectually and morally inferior. And deep down, they know that. It's why, like trained seals at the Jason Aldean concert I saw, they yelp, USA, 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 like trained seals, because that's all they have. All they have is the chant. They don't love America because America doesn't love them. America is embarrassed by Jason Aldean and his fans. He knows that his fans know that. So they wave the flag and shout USA and call themselves patriots because that's the only the only way they get to participate in America. Nobody wants to hire these slots. They barely pay taxes. That is the small town Jason Aldean is singing about. And I would feel sorry for him and his fans, but they're just a bunch of whiny pussies who would rather prattle on with their imagined white grievances than make something of themselves. Try this in your small town, Jason Aldean. Try and find a woman who doesn't reek of cigarettes, stale beer, and her father's aftershave. Try that in your small town, Jason Aldean, that you sing about. You backwater, foul-smelling, uneducated, racist, limp dick Neanderthal. You're not celebrating a small town. You're celebrating the small mines in the deep south or out west, where you better be white and stupid if you want to fit in. Try this in your small town, Jason Aldean. Try living without the largesse of the federal government. Try living without the evil federal government subsidizing all your meth labs and insulin with all the taxes paid by those coastal blue state elitists that you have nothing but contempt for, you know, you know, talent, Rube, you hayseed. Try that in your small town. You represent the taker states, the taker cities. We know who you are and where you're located. You're the takers. You receive more from the federal government than you pay into it. And we're tired of subsidizing your cheesy white asses and getting nothing but resentment in return. Try this in your small town, Jason Aldean. Invent something the world wants to buy. 
I I know exactly which small towns Jason Aldean is singing about. He's singing about the small towns that lead America in drug overdoses, infant mortality, gun homicides, high school dropout rates, traffic deaths, heart disease, diabetes, and cancer. That's the small town Jason Aldean is singing about. Check the numbers out. Check the numbers out from the CDC, the numbers that go state by state, city by city. That small town Jason Aldean is singing about Well, it's not Deerfield, Massachusetts. It's not Brattleboro, Vermont, Hyde Park, New York, or Summit, New Jersey. The small town Jason Alding is singing about has no black people, no Hispanics, no members of the LGBTQ community, no Jews, Sikhs, or Arabs. It also has no abortion clinics, decent hospitals, doctors, clean drinking water, or civil liberties. I know the small town Jason Aldean is singing about. It's where the sheriff keeps a special house out by where the old Dairy Queen used to be. And once a week, the sheriff empties out the women's jail and brings everyone back to that house for a little rape and relaxation. I know the small town Jason Aldean is singing about, where the town elders are prune-faced, involuntary incels, wearing cowboy hats and mom jeans with 60-inch waists, who can only get an erection by watching the secret GoPro feed from the State Fair outhouse. Try this in your small town, Jason Aldean. Try a healthy, loving relationship. Try that in your small town. Try this in your small town, Jason Aldean. Finding a woman who thinks you're a real man. I love the lyrics to this song. These are actual lyrics. Cuss out a cop, spit in his face, stomp on the flag, and light it up. Yeah, you think you're tough. Who spits in a cop's face? Just, <laughs> who does that? And by the way, that is tough. If I spat in a cop's face, Jason Eldine, I would consider that being tough. The lyrics, got a gun that my granddad gave me. Yeah, he's singing about the gun his granddad gave him. Uh, Here, son, here's my gun. Now use it to take me out of my misery to shoot me. A pine coffin perched on a layaway must be better than this small town we're stuck in. These are the, these are actual lyrics. This is an actual lyric. Full of good old boys raised up right. If you're looking for a fight. Yeah. If you're looking for a fight. If you're looking for a fight, I got my grandpa's gun because I'm too doughy and out of shape to use my fists. So I need a gun. Because I'm out of shape. I can't even run away from you. So I, I, I need a gun because I can't actually fight you. I'm not that tough. And I'm too stupid to learn martial arts. So I got a gun my granddaddy gave me so I can talk tough while inhaling Dorito dust and jerking off to animal porn. Because every woman in this small town knows to stay away from me. Broken marriages, broken children, child support, credit card debt, diabetes, gout, a sore ass from cheap Mexican food, and a car that reeks of bong water and counterfeit Axe body spray. That's the small town Jason Aldean is singing about, where the only thing 
you have to be proud of is being white. The point I'm making is we must love one another here in America and celebrate our differences. And we need to be understanding when it comes to the discontent and frustrations of our red state brothers and sisters. That's the message. Watch the video. It, it, it has now become, it has, you know, Jimmy Dore, Joe Rogan, Jason Aldean. It is now a career path. Ignorance is now a career path. Elon Musk announced that Twitter is getting rid of its bird logo and replacing it with an X. You know, instead of an X, why doesn't Twitter change it to a Z since most of the people Elon retweets are rooting for Russia? Have you noticed this? You see the Z? That's the symbol for Russia in the war in Ukraine. For some reason, the only tweets I see when I'm stupid enough to go on Twitter, I just get tweets that are pro-Putin, anti-Zelensky. Uh, the, the longer I stay away from Twitter, the, the, happy, uh, the happier I am. Well, you're going to be hearing a lot in the coming months about... Donald Trump's attempt to defraud the uh, United States government by helping to orchestrate phony elector slates in seven key battleground states after the 2020 presidential election. You're going to be hearing about a criminal conspiracy that involved Donald Trump, his chief of staff, Mark Meadows, and several key Republicans in states like Michigan, Arizona, Nevada, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, New Mexico, and Georgia. You're going to be hearing a lot about this, I promise you, the phony elector scheme. We're not just talking about strong-arm tactics. We're talking about Trump's lawyers, Rudy Giuliani, Sidney Powell, Kenneth Cheesebro, and John Eastman, conspiring with state Republicans to convene phony electors with forged documents to meet in state capitals and then send counterfeit slates of electors to Congress and the National Archives to be tallied on January 6th for the certification of the presidential election. I promise you, you are going to be hearing a lot about the phony electors. The Michigan State Attorney General is already prosecuting 16 phony electors, and already they are beginning to flip. They're saying they were misled by Trump's lawyers, Republican Party hacks in Michigan who didn't tell them what they were signing or why they were signing it. You're going to be hearing a lot about the Electoral Count Act of 1867 and the 12th Amendment. The phony elector scheme will most assuredly be prosecuted by special counsel Jack Smith. It's being prosecuted already in Michigan. And we're now seeing the Arizona state attorney general beginning to investigate the phony slate of electors that Donald Trump and Republicans in Arizona organized to defraud the United States government. Meanwhile, the special counsel, Jack Smith, uh, his trial in Miami, charging Donald Trump with the mishandling of classified documents and violating the Espionage Act. Seriously, Donald Trump, 
has been indicted for violating the Espionage Act. It will not be that trial will not be postponed until after the 2024 presidential election as Donald Trump petitioned the judge to decide the judge, an appointee from Trump, Judge Eileen Cannon, who's overseeing the trial, ruled that the trial must begin in May of 2024. The Fulton County District Attorney, Fannie Willis, has convened two grand juries looking into Donald Trump's attempts to overturn the 2020 presidential election in Georgia. You all remember his infamous call to the Secretary of State, Raffsenberger, ordering him, strong arming him into finding more votes. Well, there are now reports that Fannie Willis, the Fulton County District Attorney down in Georgia, she, too, is now looking into the phony elector scheme as well. Trump's attorneys asked a judge, a Supreme Court judge in Georgia, to stop this investigation. But Trump's attorneys were rebuffed. Meanwhile, The Guardian has an exclusive report that Fannie Willis, the Fulton County District Attorney in Georgia, might be planning to prosecute Trump's election meddling under state racketeering laws. Also, she may also charge Trump and his lawyers for computer trespass after Trump's lawyers strong armed their way into polling stations and were able to download the contents of several voting machines, which were then put online to crowdsource the search for voter fraud. This is all illegal, all illegal. There are now reports that Fulton County D.A. Fannie Willis is expecting to hand down a series of indictments charging Trump with election crime sometime next month. The mayor of Atlanta, the police chief and Fannie Willis are reportedly coordinating for fear, for fear of violence in the streets. Why would they think that going after Trump might result in violence in the streets? There are also reports that special counsel Jack Smith is focusing on Trump's election interference in Georgia as well. Republican Governor Brian Kemp told USA Today on Sunday that he has been contacted by Jack Smith's office. Kemp, who voted for Trump, refused to cooperate with the president. He turned down requests to assist Trump and his lawyers in trying to either find more votes for Trump or convene a special session of the state legislature to overturn the election results based on the fake claims of voter fraud. Those are fake claims. We are on the indictment watch. I don't know what's going to happen, but we're waiting on special counsel Jack Smith's first series of indictments charging Donald Trump for the crimes he committed in the lead up to and during January 6. Now, this is conjecture. I believe the longer we wait for this indictment, I think the worse it gets for Donald Trump. Again, I don't know anything, but my gut, which is always wrong, my gut tells me that special counsel Jack Smith is pushing Trump's former chief of staff, Mark Meadows, into such a tight corner that he will have no choice but to rat Trump out. I think Mark Meadows 
is going to rat Trump out either as a cooperating witness or an immunized witness. This is my gut. I think special counsel Jack Smith can get Mark Meadows to go full Michael Cohn. I think he will spill it all. And then that will be it for Trump. And here's why I think Mark Meadows might rat Trump out. Because Mark Meadows is a rat. He really is a rat. If you were to ask me of all the characters involved in the Trump administration, I, I eat more than Steve Bannon and uh, Stephen Miller. I think I, I think Mark Meadows is the worst of the worst. So I'm going to be talking a little bit about Mark Meadows. And what we all must remember is Meadows was Trump's chief of staff. That means Mark Meadows ran the White House. Now, Trump never lets anybody get too much authority and chiefs of staff in the Trump White Houses were always undermined. But when push comes to shove, chiefs of staff are like the CEO of the Oval Office. Whatever goes on inside the Oval Office, the chief of staff knows it or orchestrated it. Mark Meadows, chief of staff, he was the last chief of staff, he can't hide behind executive privilege. A judge said, no, Meadows cannot hide behind executive privilege. He had to testify before Jack Smith's grand jury, and he did last month. Now, perhaps there might have been some stuff during the grand jury testimony that Mark Meadows held back claiming executive privilege. Who knows? All I know is... If Mark Meadows somehow became a cooperating witness or an immunized witness, I have to believe we're looking at jail time for Donald Trump. Again, I don't have a clue. This is conjecture. All I know is this. It was a week ago Sunday that Trump received a letter from special counsel Jack Smith telling him he's the target of an investigation. Regarding January 6th, this is the first prosecution that Jack Smith is going to uh, perform regarding January 6th. Now, according to all the reporting, no other individual has received a similar target letter. Again, I'm usually wrong, but it looks like special counsel Jack Smith is going to lop off the head of the snake He's not working his way up the food chain when it comes to January 6th. He's going straight for Trump. And the number of high-level Trump appointees and political associates who have been marched before Jack Smith's grand jury in Washington is positively staggering. It suggests the following. It suggests the following. That to avoid prison... Most, if not all, of Donald Trump's closest associates have cooperated. They've been forced to testify under oath, and they don't want to be charged with perjury. It suggests that many, if not all, have been offered immunity. 
Andrew made some sort of proffer agreement. A proffer agreement is a deal that falls a little bit short of immunity. But the big fish, as I see it in the next couple of weeks, is prosecuting Trump and only prosecuting Trump for January 6th. And you do that. You do that by getting chief of staff Mark Meadows to flip. That's what I think. I'm always wrong. okay? but I think if they get Mark Meadows to pull a Michael Cohen, that's it for Trump. We know that there were countless crimes committed by high level Trump officials. And we know that Jack Smith has all of them dead to rights. But the target letter is now a week old. Why the delay in the indictments? Everyone who worked for Trump, who assisted Trump, who lied for him and covered for him, they know right now this period between the target letter being received by Donald Trump and the indictments, this period, this interim period, they all know this is do or die time right now. The clock is ticking. They have to make their deal with special counsel Jack Smith or they will be indicted either along with Trump or after Trump, probably after Trump, since there are time constraints. They dictate the time constraints dictate that Trump must be indicted immediately because the election calendar hangs over all these proceedings. I know nothing I know nothing, but I am hoping the reason the indictment hasn't come down yet is because Jack Smith, the special counsel, is still pressuring Mark Meadows, Trump's chief of staff. He's still pressuring Mark Meadows into becoming a cooperating witness or an immunized witness. And if that happens, if that happens it all comes crumbling down around Donald Trump. I can't stress this enough. Mark Meadows, Mark Meadows is the cornerstone in prosecuting Trump for January 6th. And you get Meadows to cooperate in exchange for immunity. It is over. Then again, I'm always wrong. Mark Meadows, that was Trump's chief of staff, He is a right wing, self-serving pubic lice on the body politic and one of the founders of the Freedom Caucus. He has been silent for at least six months, doesn't speak to anybody, which means he's terrified. We know that last month he testified before Jack Smith's grand jury under oath to save his own hide. And Mark Meadows has been known to do that. Mark Meadows could possibly have given away the entire game and is prepared to give away the entire game because as White House chief of staff, he just doesn't know where the bodies are buried. He helped bury them. Meadows, from what has been reported, was in, if not orchestrating the fake elector scheme. Meadows was, from what we are reading, helped organize the phony slate of electors in battleground states. 
if he flips and says he was following Trump's orders, you can't find a more consequential and material witness to prove Trump conspired to defraud the United States government by sending false electors to Congress. We're talking about Mark Meadows, the White House chief of staff. His office is right off the side of the Oval Office. Meadows could possibly have spilled everything to the grand jury about the White House, not just coordinating with the phony electors, but coordinating with the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers, those extrajudicial thugs who stormed the Capitol on January 6th and are now doing time for seditious conspiracy. I don't know if I've ever mentioned this on the show, but the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers are doing time for seditious conspiracy. And Cassidy Hutchinson testified that the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers, their names were bandied about in the Oval Office in the lead up to January 6th. Cassidy Hutchinson worked right underneath Mark Meadows. And if Mark Meadows was the eyes and the ears of the White House serving as Trump's chief of staff, Cassidy Hutchinson was Mark Meadows' eyes and ears. She saw everything Mark Meadows saw. And because of her proximity to the Oval Office, she saw things Mark Meadows didn't see. She cooperated with the January 6th committee, and we know she's cooperating with special counsel Jack Smith. She told the January 6th Select Committee that days before the insurrection, Mark Meadows warned her it was going to get violent on January 6th, and yet he did nothing to stop it. Instead, he stoked it. It was reported a year ago that Chief of Staff Mark Meadows incinerated papers while he was in the White House. Uh, we don't know if it was in the lead up to January 6th or right after January 6th, but he incinerated papers after a meeting he had held with Pennsylvania Congressman Scott Perry. Why is the White House chief of staff allegedly destroying White House papers, evidence that documents his meeting with Congressman Scott Perry, who, according to January 6th vice chair, the January 6th committee vice chair, Liz Cheney, according to Liz Cheney, Congressman Scott Perry begged Donald Trump for a pardon after January 6th failed insurrection. Why would Congressman Scott Perry beg Donald Trump for a pardon after January 6th? Well, first off, Scott Perry insists he didn't ask for a pardon. OK, but we do know the FBI last year stopped him on the street, stops Congressman Scott Perry on the street with a warrant and seized his cell phone. We only know what special counsel Jack Smith is leaking and what we heard during the January 6th select committee hearings. We do know that there is testimony that right after the 2020 presidential election, Congressman Scott Perry introduced Donald Trump and most likely his chief of staff, Mark Meadows, to this guy, Jeffrey Clark. 
I know it's hard to keep track of these people, but this is really important. Jeffrey Clark is a consequential figure in the prosecution of Donald Trump. Jeffrey Clark is a low level, was a low level Justice Department official working in the civil division of the Justice Department. Nobody really knew who he was. I believe he's a Harvard Law School graduate. And in the waning days of the Trump presidency, in the lead up to January 6, Jeffrey Clark appears to have been more than willing to not just spread election fraud conspiracy theories like Italian satellites altering Dominion voting machines to switch Trump votes to Biden votes. He was not only willing to spread those falsehoods, he was willing to use his legal authority in the Justice Department to act on these false claims. He was willing to act on these false claims so much so that days before January 6, Donald Trump was prepared to name Jeffrey Clark as acting attorney general so that Jeffrey Clark could mobilize the entire Justice Department to prove rampant voter fraud, even though none existed. And Jeffrey Clark knew none existed. And remember, if he knew that voter fraud didn't exist, but used any of his powers within the Justice Department to mobilize, say, phony electors or strong arm election officials, then that proves criminal intent. Jeffrey Clark, there, there, there are disbarment hearings going on right now, and uh, he almost became acting attorney general days before January 6. According to the Hatch Act, it is illegal for Donald Trump, Mark Meadows, or Jeffrey Clark to coerce top-level Justice Department attorneys into pushing a partisan political agenda, agenda to alter the results of an election. It is illegal under the Hatch Act for Jeffrey Clark, either as a low-level Department of Justice official or as he was hoping to become acting attorney general it is illegal for Mark Meadows, chief of staff or Donald Trump. It is illegal to strong arm to coerce high level Justice Department attorneys into executing a political agenda in order to alter the results of an election. It's criminal. I don't know much. I think most of you know that by now. But I do know that the attempt to make Jeffrey Clark the acting attorney general for the sole purpose of prosecuting non-existent voter fraud, I know it is a criminal violation of the Hatch Act. And it doesn't matter. I don't think I don't think it matters that Trump and Mark Meadows failed to appoint Clark as acting attorney general. They were blocked by the entire Justice Department, which threatened to resign if if Jeffrey Clark became the acting attorney general. The fact that he was blocked from committing a crime doesn't mean they didn't conspire 
to commit this crime. If you walk into a bank, if you conspire to rob a bank but are stopped before you get the money, you're still guilty of trying to rob the bank. And all this, because Mark Meadows is at the top of this, right next to Donald Trump. Nobody comes closer. Nobody. Nobody. Not Jared Kushner. Not Ivanka. Nobody else stuck by Donald Trump's side so tightly and for so long after the 2020 presidential election. At least nobody who was employed by the government. Okay, you have Rudy, you have other outside lawyers who came in, but there were only two people working in the government who in the executive in the executive branch who stuck with Donald Trump to the bitter end. Mark Meadows and Jeffrey Clark, who wanted to become acting attorney general. And this is why Mark Meadows is in so much trouble. It's why nobody has heard from him in months. It's why he appears, he it appears, at least to me, he's cooperating with the special counsel, Jack Smith. He's been forced to. The judge said you have to testify, no executive privilege. And as I've been saying, if he if 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 Mark Meadows becomes a witness for the prosecution, a cooperating witness, or an immunized witness. And I suspect that's about to happen. Then Jack Smith, the special counsel, should have no trouble convincing a jury that Donald Trump didn't just conspire, but ordered his inferiors in the executive branch to participate in one, a massive conspiracy to raise money based on the lie that the 2020 election had been stolen and that would be wire fraud. Two, he ordered them to use that lie to defraud the United States government by orchestrating the meeting of the so-called fake electors in seven key battleground states that Joe Biden won. He orchestrated, he ordered them, along with Mark Meadows, to send fake certificates, forged documents claiming that these fake electors were the duly appointed electors, which they weren't. It's fraud. Three, that Trump illegally pressured Mike Prince, Mike Prince, Mike Pence, that, that Trump illegally, along with Mark Meadows, illegally pressured Vice President Mike Pence under, as they say, the color of the law, under the authority vested in Trump, and to some degree, Mark Meadows, under the authority invested in them by the Constitution, they were strong arming Pence into violating the Electoral Count Act of 1877, as well as the, as well as the 12th Amendment. They were, they were telling him to refuse to certify the election for Joe Biden on January 6th. And uh, that's illegal. Number four, they conspired with armed thugs like the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers to use violence to stop a government proceeding, which is against the law. As well, they conspired with them to engage in seditious conspiracy 
possibly instigate an insurrection. Insurrection is going to be a little tricky to try to prove in a court of law, but you could. You could prove that it was an insurrection against the United States government. If anyone, and here's the thing that I think we all have to understand in the lead up to these prosecutions, there's only one person who is as guilty of all this as Donald Trump is. One person is as guilty for all these crimes as Donald Trump is, and that is his chief of staff, Mark Meadows. Now, we all heard that illegal call that Trump made to Raffsenberger, the Georgia Secretary of State, a Republican who voted for Trump. We all heard that illegal call urging him to find votes for Trump. Mark Meadows was in on that call. He arranged that call. His son, Mark Meadows, son is a lawyer in Georgia who was dispatched to find evidence of voter fraud. We are now reading reports that Meadows' son informed him no voter fraud in Georgia. That means criminal intent. If everyone in the White House, everyone in the White House, including Mark Meadows and Donald Trump, they were all told there was no voter fraud. That's criminal intent. If you if you honestly think there's voter fraud, then there's a way to avoid a conviction. But if everyone working in the White House tells Mark Meadows and Donald Trump there's no voter fraud, there's criminal intent. By, by January 2nd, they had lost more than 60 voter fraud cases around the country. By the time Trump and Meadows were on that phone call with the Georgia Secretary of State, claiming voter fraud, ordering him, threatening him to find more votes for Trump. Every paid employee at the top level of the executive branch had told Donald Trump and Mark Meadows there was no voter fraud. Every single top level employee in the executive branch, except Jeffrey Clark in the Justice Department told Donald Trump and Mark Meadows there is no election fraud. Everybody in the executive branch from Homeland Security to two separate attorney generals, Bill Barr and Rod Rosen, to the White House counsel Cipollone. I don't know how to pronounce his last name. Everybody on the payroll at the top of the executive branch told Donald Trump and Mark Meadows that voter fraud was non-existence. That proves criminal intent. The only people working at the top of the executive branch who kept pushing voter fraud, there were three people who kept pushing voter fraud. Jeffrey Clark, who wanted to become the acting attorney general, Mark Meadows, the White House chief of staff, and Donald Trump. Everybody else, everybody else who was paid by the government said no voter fraud. Now, voter fraud uh, 
was promoted by outside counsel, Rudy Giuliani. He wasn't working for the government. Sidney Powell, Kenneth Cheesebro, John Eastman, and Ginny Thomas, Clarence's wife, who was constantly texting Mark Meadows, telling him this was a fight between good and evil. All of them were employed by Trump, but they were not high-level executive branch government officials. I cannot stress this enough. The entire executive branch across all the agencies from Homeland Security, the FBI, the Justice Department, all populated by loyal Republicans, everyone except for Jeffrey Clark, Mark Meadows and Donald Trump, they all said there was no voter fraud. That's criminal. That proves criminal intent. It proves that Mark Meadows, Donald Trump and Jeffrey Clark, who wanted to be the acting attorney general, it proves they knew they had lost the that, that the that, that they lost that voter fraud wasn't real. Uh, and we're now I'll, I'll get to more of this. There's now evidence of Mark Meadows being told by his son and admitting that voter fraud uh, it was non-existence. There's also testimony of, I think it was Cassidy Hutchinson, who heard Donald Trump say in the lead up to January 6th, I can't believe I lost to that idiot, Joe Biden. OK. Attorney General Bill Barr told Donald Trump before he quit in December of 2020 Attorney General Bill Barr told Donald Trump the voter fraud claims were, quote unquote, bullshit. That proves Mark Meadows and Donald Trump had criminal intent, which is why Mark Meadows is in so much trouble unless he flips and becomes a cooperating witness or an immunized witness. And if he flips or if. Jeffrey Clark, who wants wanted to be acting attorney general, if he flips, 70 million MAGA supporters can take to the streets and riot in support of Donald Trump. It doesn't matter. He's going to prison. And I cannot help but believe Mark Meadows right now is dropping to his knees and begging special counsel Jack Smith not to prosecute him. Wouldn't be the first time that Mark Meadows dropped to his knees. He famously dropped to his knees before Speaker John Boehner. This is true. Dropped to his knees and begged John Boehner to forgive him, to forgive Meadows for the role that Mark Meadows played in 2015's failed coup. That's what they call it, a failed coup to replace Boehner. With a Freedom Caucus hardliner, Mark Meadows is one of the founders of the Freedom Caucus, and he tried to vacate the chair, get rid of John Boehner. And when it backfired, Meadows panicked, went into the speaker's office and literally dropped to his knees and begged for forgiveness. He's a rat. Mark Meadows is a rat. He's stupid. He's immoral. And he's a self-dealer. And if Jack Smith, the special counsel, is squeezing Meadows, Meadows is going to squeal. 
I have to believe that. And right now, Smith's office, Special Counsel Jack Smith's office, is letting out little bits and pieces. He's leaking about Meadows' criminal intent, which suggests that Meadows might not yet have flipped, which is maybe why the indictments have not yet come, come down yet. I believe the reason we haven't seen these indictments yet is Jack Smith is trying to get Meadows to flip before Trump's indictment. This is the handiwork, I believe, of the special counsel's office. What happened? Why are you doing this to me? Hang on. Uh, this came out over the weekend. We learned, and I have to believe this was leaked by Jack Smith's office to get Meadows scared and to get him to flip. We learned that Mark Meadows openly admitted to staffers in the White House in the lead up to January 6th that there was no election fraud. Wait, it got worse for Meadows. The Washington Post broke this story on Saturday reporting that Jack's... What the hell is going on? That that uh, the Washington Post broke this story on Saturday reporting that Jack Smith's office has in its possession a series of texts in which Mark Meadows, in the lead up to January 6th, joked about Donald Trump's voter fraud claims. Why is this important? It serves as material evidence, written texts, proving criminal intent. If you have evidence that Mark Meadows was joking about voter fraud, that he knew the claims were bogus, yet he still went ahead with a phony elector scheme. He still went ahead with plans to undermine the Justice Department by encouraging Trump to appoint Jeffrey Clark as acting attorney general in order to turn the Justice Department into a voter fraud propaganda machine. If he was doing all that while openly admitting that the voter fraud claims were bogus, that proves criminal intent. He told the Georgia Secretary of State during that infamous call that he had evidence of voter fraud. While we now know that his own son, Mark Meadows, told the Secretary of State of Georgia that he had evidence of voter fraud while he had already received information from his own son in Georgia that there was no evidence of voter fraud. That's criminal intent. If he went ahead with plans to pressure Mike Pence into not certifying the election on January 6th, if he made calls to members of Congress urging them not to certify, claiming voter fraud and knowing that was a lie, if he knew the claims were false but helped organize Trump's January 6th rally on the ellipse, knowing that high-ranking members of Trump's legal team, like Sidney Powell, Rudy Giuliani, and Roger Stone, as well as General Michael Flynn, were coordinating on the ground with members of the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers. If he knew the election had not been stolen, but still participated in all this, helped Trump orchestrate a conspiracy to spread the voter fraud lie in order to defraud the United States government 
block a government proceeding through coercion and violence. If he destroyed evidence, he burnt documents after his meeting with Congressman Scott Perry. All of that proves criminal intent. And I think the reason I'm just going to this is I think the reason we haven't seen the Trump indictment come down yet is because Smith Special Counsel Jack Smith is still twisting Mark Meadows' arm, squeezing him to go all in and become a witness for the prosecution. And I cannot stress this enough. If Special Counsel Jack Smith gets Mark Meadows to flip, then he gets it all. He gets Trump on dereliction of duty for January 6th and failure to uphold his oath to protect the Constitution of the United States. We know from testimony during the January 6th committee that while the Capitol was under siege, while White House staffers were beseeching Mark Meadows to get the president to call off the attack, that Meadows sat in his office telling people like Trump's White House counsel, quote, there's nothing I can do. Trump doesn't believe this is a quote from the chief of staff, Mark Meadows. This is what he said when everybody from Donald Trump Jr. to Sean Hannity to the White House counsel were on the phone with Mark Meadows, getting trying to get him to tell Trump to call off the attack dogs. Mark Meadows reportedly said there's nothing I can do. This is while the Capitol is being attacked. He says, there's nothing I can do. Trump doesn't believe the people storming the Capitol are doing anything wrong. And that Trump believes, quote, Mike Pence deserves to be hanged. This is incredible. Trump had a constitutional responsibility to protect Congress Not just to call off the insurrection, but use his emergency powers to call in the National Guard. But he refused. He refused. It was Mike Pence, the odious Mike Pence hiding in the Capitol, who was on the phone with Mark Milley, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, trying to coordinate a rescue mission When chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, Mark Milley, finally got Mark Meadows on the line while all this was going on, while the insurrection was going on, the very first thing, according to the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, Mark Milley, the very first thing out of Mark Meadows' mouth was not, how do we protect Congress from these marauders? How do we help the police? The very first thing out of Mark Meadows' mouth was, how do we control the narrative? How do we control the narrative? Meadows, according to the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, Meadows was more worried about the narrative being fed to the media He was more worried that the media was picking up on a narrative that Mike Pence was calling the shots. It's incredible. Mark Meadows, Trump's loyal henchman to the bitter end, 
wasn't concerned about saving the lives of the Capitol Police officers, saving the life of Mike Pence or Nancy Pelosi. His only concern, the only concern of this demented sociopath, Mark Meadows, was how do we make it look like Donald Trump is still in command so that when and if the troops ever do rescue everyone in the Capitol, it will look like Donald Trump ordered this and not and not Mike Pence. Meadows is a piece of work. He followed Trump's every command, every step of the way. If Donald Trump is guilty, Mark Meadows is guilty for pretty much the same exact crimes, pretty much. Which is why I suspect when Jack Smith hands down this next set of indictments, it will either include Mark Meadows or he will be a witness for the prosecution. If it happens, if Mark Meadows cooperates with Jack Smith, it is over for Donald Trump. I know. I, actually, I'm not one of those people who says we got him this time. I've, I really don't say that. I don't. I've always said I don't think Donald Trump will ever go to prison. I, I still don't believe they'll, they'll lock him up. But if Mark Meadows, keep your eye on the disposition of Mark Meadows. If Mark Meadows flips, I don't think Trump will be able to find a lawyer to defend him. I think he, he's going to have to drop out of the race. And I think Joe Biden pardons him. That's what I think. I am always wrong, by the way. So disregard everything I just said. How am I doing on time? OK, uh, I, I don't have time to talk about Israel. Uh, I'll talk about Israel uh, tomorrow. Uh, uh, thanks to the fascistic Israeli prime minister, Benjamin Netanyahu, Israel is now lurching not just to the right, but towards an authoritarian state. Well, it already is an authoritarian state for Palestinians living in the West Bank. But now there is a battle for democracy uh, in a country that more and more people around the world, including American Jews, are beginning to fear is less democratic. Uh, a lot of the citizens of Israel fear that Israel is falling under the fascist boot heel of Benjamin Netanyahu. There's talk of a civil war in Israel right now. Benjamin Netanyahu is a fascist. He is the, I believe, the longest serving prime minister of Israel. In my limited time with you, I want to talk about a very important organization called Project Democracy. It is a bipartisan nonprofit that monitors the march towards authoritarianism around the world and here in America. It's called ProjectDemocracy.org. Go there. Some of my favorite authors sit on the board 
of Protect Democracy. Authors like Timothy Snyder, Stephen Levitsky, and Ann Applebaum, who have all written extensively on how democracies die. It's really valuable. Check out protectdemocracy.org. They put together a very sophisticated and highly reliable monitor to keep track of democracies around the world, including America, and the threat levels each one faces. The threat levels go from one to five. One means it's a low-level threat. Uh, democracy in, in a country that is at a one is safe. Five is catastrophic, meaning the country has lost its democracy. So it goes low threat, significant threat, severe threat, critical threat, and catastrophic. America, just so you know, currently gets a 2.2 out of five, which means we have a significant threat to our democracy right now, but we're not teetering into the abyss. This is really important. This is why you need to check out protectdemocracy.org, because they're not alarmists. They're sober minded authors and professors who study the rise and fall of democracies around the country, around the world. They're not saying the sky is falling here in America, just chunks of it. And the reason I'm talking about this is partly because it's good news. There, I happen to think it's good news that we're not at a five. Sometimes it feels like it. For example, as of today, the, democ the democracies in Canada and Germany have a threat level listed as low, while India has a threat level listed as severe. The United States and Great Britain are listed at a significant threat level. And to make these assessments, the experts at Protect Democracy use five yardsticks to track the threats to a democracy. Those yardsticks are, one, freedom of the press, two, concentration of power in the executive branch, three, free and open elections, for the erosion of civil liberties, you know, like measuring the ability to protest without police harassment like that. And then there's civil violence, for example, the rise of extrajudicial right wing thugs like, say, Roger Rittenhouse, who shows up at a Black Lives Matter with an AR-15 while police give him a wink and a nod. And finally, uh, the last yardstick is rhetoric being deployed by far-right politicians and office holders. According to protectdemocracy.org, the threat to American democracy is listed as severe, with four categories listed as under-significant threat. I don't know if that is correct. I have to, I don't think it's, the threat to American democracy, I believe, is under significant threat. But in other categories, for example, in America, our elections, our civil liberties, threats of civic violence and rhetoric have been measured as being at significant risk threat levels. Again, above significant is critical and then catastrophic. One of the good deeds, I know that didn't make any sense. I apologize. That was just me trying to read off a chart and it was complete hogwash. I apologize.
One of the good deeds performed by protectdemocracy.org is they canonize, and this is really important. Please, please pay attention to this. Let me just get some water. They canonize the authoritarian playbook. And I got to wrap it up, but this is what we need to remind ourselves of every day. There is a playbook. There is a fascist playbook. There is an authoritarian playbook. I'm going to assume most of you already know it. The Republican Party is working off a script followed by countless fascist leaders, as well as their parties and henchmen since the time of Mussolini and before. And we need to recognize the playbook and the plays in that playbook. And we need to call it out when we see it. Okay, I'm going to wrap it up. But these are the seven moves that have been identified as part of the authoritarian playbook. Politicizing, number one, politicizing independent institutions. Okay, during the height of COVID, for example, Donald Trump politicized the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases under the leadership of Dr. Fauci. Right. Trump and the Republicans were embarrassed by how they completely dropped the ball on COVID. So instead of taking the blame, they politicized the independent institution like the NIH or the CDC. These are reliable patriotic institutions that are beholden to the people, not Trump. So they were embarrassing Trump. Trump demeans and politicize, demeans and politicizes Fauci. They insist the FBI, the Justice Department are weaponized. Uh, they, they say that the uh, that is how they politicize an independent institution. You know, the FBI, they're not saints, but uh, they, they the what the fascists do is they politicize the Justice Department. Christopher Wray, the head of the FBI, is a Republican appointed by Donald Trump. He's an independent leader. But because he's investigating Trump, the Republicans accuse the FBI of being politicized. And that undermines the people's faith in democratic institutions. This is all part of the authoritarian playbook, spreading disinformation, lying, alternative facts, alternative truths, as Steve Bannon calls it, flooding the end zone with bullshit. The right wing authoritarian propaganda machine just doesn't spread lies. It spreads confusion, bits and pieces and scraps of information, half truths, to leave most Americans dumbfounded and feeling stupid. For example, the Hunter Biden laptop. Does anybody understand that story? If you ask a Trump supporter what the laptop revealed, they'll say a massive conspiracy on the Biden crime family's behalf to steal $100 million from foreign governments. And when you ask for what specifically is in the laptop to prove that, they can only cite an email referring to Joe Biden as the big guy. We need money for the big guy. What they leave out is this is a laptop belonging to a self-confessed crack addict who is hanging out with prostitutes, drinking, 
destroying his life, committing slow motion suicide. But his emails sent at the same exact time while he's on this this suicidal bender, the emails we're supposed to believe are businesslike and sober, that they're realistic plans to enrich the Biden crime family. We're supposed to believe that Joe Biden trusted his crack addict son who was teetering on death. We're supposed to believe that while all that was going on, he's making porn films, his teeth are rotted out from either meth or cocaine. But throughout all that, we're supposed to believe that Joe Biden read the email sent by Hunter at the time and saw it as rational thought and ideas, business ideas that should be acted upon. Another playbook, another play from the playbook, aggrandizing executive power, weakening checks and balances. Big story last week in The New York Times. Donald Trump isn't messing around. If he gets reelected, God forbid, he's going to lay off half the executive branch and just uh, invoke the unitary theory of the executive branch, which Bill Barr is a strong proponent of where the president is king. There are people who serve in our government, upstanding members of our government, like Bill Barr, who believe in the unitary power of the executive branch, who don't believe in democracy. They believe in pretty much making the president the king. Uh, What else is in the uh, authoritarian playbook? What it, Quashing criticism or dissent. Are you going to? There you go. Uh, That's obvious, right? This isn't so obvious. Marginalizing vulnerable communities. It's what Hitler did. It's what Mussolini did. It's what DeSantis is doing in Florida, picking on the transgender community and African-Americans. It's all about the othering of people. This is what fascists do because they don't have a majority. Most people hate uh, fascists. Hitler did not win in March of 1933. He did not. He had a plurality. He didn't have enough votes. But what fascists do when they don't have a majority is they other people. They other the blacks, the gays, the Hispanics, the Arabs, the Jews. They say they're not really Americans. Their votes don't count. And then then they scapegoat them. This is all part of the authoritarian playbook. Corrupting elections. We I just talked nonstop about Trump's corrupting of the 2020 elections shamelessly shamelessly and of course finally and this is important we forget about this stoking violence what is striking about january 6 is not just the violence we saw on that day what is underreported in the lead up to january 6 is the violence directed at Republicans before January 6, violence directed at Republicans who refused to help Donald Trump steal the election. Mike Pence was going to be killed on January 6. They came with ropes. They came with gallows. This is a fact. Mike Pence's Secret Service detail on January 6 was screaming into the phone, 
leaving messages with their central command, telling them to call their families and tell them they love them. It was like a hijacked plane on 9-11. Secret Service agents who were part of Mike Pence's detail were leaving messages with their loved ones saying, I love you. In the lead up to January 6th, Mike Pence's chief of staff and his counsel, his attorney, alerted the Secret Service that they feared for Mike Pence's life once he went ahead and defied Trump's orders not to certify the election. Remember I, I said earlier that Mark Meadows, the chief of staff in the lead up to January 6th, told his assistant Cassidy Hutchinson that January 6th is going to be violent. You have Mike Pence's attorney and his chief of staff alerting the Secret Service saying that Mike Pence is going to disobey Trump's order and not certify the election and not decertify the election on uh, January 6th. And we're worried for his physical safety. It's not just Mike Pence. And this is an underreported story. On December 30th, 2020, the Republican Speaker of the Pennsylvania House of Representatives was being pressured by Trump, by Rudy Giuliani, to convene a special session to reverse the popular will of the voters in Pennsylvania and award Pennsylvania's electoral votes to Trump, even though Trump lost the popular vote. Brian Cutler is the name of the Republican speaker, and he refused. Hundreds of protesters immediately showed up outside his office, then outside his home. That was followed by all his personal information getting doxxed by Trump supporters. His cell phone number, his home address and his home phone number uh, were doxxed. His phone home phone number had to be switched off because it wouldn't stop ringing with life-threatening messages. This is a Republican. In Georgia, where an indictment is expected to be handed down in August by Fannie Willis, the Secretary of State, Republican Brad Raffsenberger, after conducting three recounts and found Joe Biden won Georgia, Raffsenberger refused to take Trump's calls to take Mark Meadows' calls. They wouldn't stop calling him. Uh, they finally got through to him. But uh, after he refused to do what Trump ordered him to do, was find you know one more vote than uh, Biden has, his personal information was doxxed. His life was threatened. His wife received text messages which threatened to rape her. His son had just died. So his son's widow began receiving threatening calls and her home was broken into while her grandkids, while Raffsenberger's grandkids from his deceased son were sleeping in there. The entire family, the Secretary of State of Georgia, Raffsenberger, his entire family had to go into hiding for two weeks. Arizona Secretary of State Katie Hobbs is a Democrat. She told Reuters she continues to receive death threats for certifying. Michigan Secretary of State Jocelyn Benson, a Democrat who faced armed protesters outside her home before January 6th, 
received death threats because she was challenging the election. Uh, Trump's version of the election, Republican majority leader of the Michigan State Senate, Mike Shirky, refused to cooperate with Trump and the phony elector scheme. He said after he refused to cooperate, he received 4,000 text messages. Trump supporters docked his personal information. Republican Speaker of the Arizona House of Representatives, Rusty Bowers, Republican, refused to cooperate with Trump on the phony elector scheme. 20,000 emails flooded his inbox, thousands of voicemails and texts and trucks outside his home at all hours of the night with loudspeakers blaring, accusing him of being a pedophile. Those are the top Republicans and some of the top Democrats in states like Arizona, Georgia and Pennsylvania. It was even worse for low level election workers whose lives were under constant assault from armed Trump supporters. Would you be an election official? This is all part of the authoritarian playbook, stoking violence. Who needs the hassle, right? What, why challenge Donald Trump if, you're, if people are going to break into your home, threaten to kill your family? This is the authoritarian playbook. Let's review. This is it. Let me go full screen here. This is the authoritarian playbook. One, politicizing independent institutions. Pay attention when you read the news, when you see what Jim Jordan is doing, Kevin McCarthy, uh, Ron DeSantis, politicizing independent institutions. Uh, why does this not work? Let's try it again. Here we go. Politicizing independent institutions, spreading disinformation, Fox News, right? aggrandizing executive power, weakening checks and balances. We've read about Trump's plan when he's reelected to just give as much power to the Oval Office as you possibly can. Quashing criticism or dissent, obviously. Marginalizing vulnerable communities. You see what Ron DeSantis is doing in Florida. Corrupting elections, well, that speaks for itself, and stoking violence. Those are the moves. Those are the seven moves. Learn them. Pay attention to them. It's being deployed by Republicans. Unquestionably, it's being deployed by Benjamin Netanyahu in Israel, Orban in Hungary, Putin in Russia, we saw Bolsonaro do this in Brazil. They all work off the same playbook and say the same exact things. The reason authoritarians push American exceptionalism is so we don't pay attention to other authoritarian regimes around the world. When you push American exceptionalism, you say, We're, there's nobody like us. What happens in America is different from every other country in the world. So we go, I'm not going to pay attention to what's happening in Poland. 
I'm not going to pay attention to Hungary, to Brazil, to Russia. I'm not going to pay attention because we're exceptional. If you don't believe in American exceptionalism, you realize we're no different from any other democracy, including Italy, Germany and Spain in the 30s. It can happen anywhere and it will happen here in America. Go to protectingdemocracy.org. Check the site out. Pay attention to the to the playbook, what they're doing. We're not there yet. We're several steps away from losing this democracy. Learn the playbook. Learn it. Teach it to your friends and your kids. Donald Trump Jr. is supposed to be in Australia this week, but his speaking tour got canceled. Aww. Several LGBTQ groups in Australia initially accused the former president's idiot son of spreading hate and misinformation. And these groups tried to block Australia from giving Don Jr. a visa. Well, Don Jr. was forced to cancel his tour of Australia. And of course, he blamed the cancel culture. He insisted that he couldn't speak in Australia because he was being silenced by the left. But that's not true. It turns out Don Jr. was silenced not by the Australian left. He got his work visa. No, turned out. Don Jr. was silenced by slow ticket sales. That's why Don Jr. was forced to cancel his tour of Australia. But Don Jr. can't admit to himself that he's a failure. He can't admit to, I guess he has fans, that he's a failure. So instead, he blames the cancel culture. Claire O'Neill is a member of Australia's Labour Party. She serves as Minister of Cyber Security and Home Affairs. And she took exception to Don Trump Jr., Donald Trump Jr., and the organizers of Turning Points Australia. Turning Points Australia are the clowns who booked the Don Jr. tour that nobody wanted to see. Uh Claire O'Neill accused Don Jr. and Turning Points Australia of lying, of misleading the public when they claimed the tour was canceled because the Australian government declined Don Jr.'s request for a visa. That's a lie. O'Neill says Don Jr. was given his visa and was welcome to speak in Australia, but nobody wanted to hear him, certainly not pay to hear him. Poor ticket sales, but blame everything on the censorious left, right? That's the go-to for people like Don, Donald Trump Jr. Blame the censorious left. Meanwhile, Republicans are banning books, going after librarians, attacking members of the press, calling the news media enemies of the state. They're banning the teaching of critical race and sex education, and they're outlawing performances by drag queens. But somehow it's the left that opposes free speech. You see, 
The truth is the left believes in free speech. It doesn't believe in hate speech. It doesn't believe in the kind of speech that gets people killed. The left doesn't believe in letting politicians and celebrities get away with spreading fake science based on discredited research because hate speech and fake science based on discredited research gets people killed. The left doesn't believe in banning speech. It believes in correcting speech. When you say something racist, homophobic or false about climate change, the left is going to correct you. They're not going to shut you up. They're going to correct you the same way a teacher giving you an F on an essay loaded with errors isn't censorship. It's an F. It's correcting your speech because it's wrong. You're getting an F. Because just because you're talking and thoughts are dribbling from your lips, just because you blow things out your mouth with thunderous authority, that doesn't mean you're correct. It doesn't mean you're smart or decent. The right wing in America is one big propaganda machine funded by oil companies, big business, bigoted Christians and racists. They are all bullies in the classic sense. And bullies cannot be questioned because bullies cannot live in a world where there is an opposing viewpoint. They cannot live in a world where they are wrong. And so they accuse the left of doing what they do silencing opposing viewpoints. Anybody who questions their facts is trying to censor them. The truth is nobody was censoring Don Jr. The Australians are much smarter than Americans. They're too smart to pay to see Don Jr. speak in Australia because they know he's an idiot and he's also a bully and a liar who has to blame it all on censorship has nothing to do with censorship. This is Claire O'Neill's tweet that she ended up taking down. She's uh, from the Labor Party. And here she is calling Don Jr. out on uh, his BS. Geez, Donald Trump Jr. is a bit of a sore loser. His dad lost an election fair and square, but he says it was stolen. Now he's trying to blame the Australian government for his poor ticket sales and canceled tour. He's just a big baby who isn't very popular. Yeah. Well, Turning Points Australia didn't get Don Jr., but Turning Points USA had another one of their big conferences in Florida last weekend where a heavy-lidded, a heavy-lidded Don Jr. went after FBI Director Christopher Wray. He's mad at Christopher Wray for looking into Donald Trump Sr.'s mishandling of classified documents. Don Jr. is appalled that the FBI is wasting human resources investigating his father instead of focusing on the real threats to America. And what does Don Jr. say are the real threats to America? I wish I was making this up. Don Jr. says the real threat to America are transgender terrorists. Again, I wish I were making this up. Don Jr. is trying to convince Republicans that America is under siege by transgender terrorists. 
Yes, it's not good enough to terrorize the transgender community here in America. Republicans like Don Jr. are now labeling labeling the transgender community as terrorists. Listen to this dangerous, heavy-lidded idiot. Right? They won't look at, like, trans terror. Because, I mean, if you're trans in 2023, you're like the most protected class in the history of the world. You can literally do anything you want and nothing will happen to you. We haven't seen the manifestos because, you know, I've heard all sorts of other terrors are terror, except for trans terror. That's different. That's special. You get protected. How do you get to that point? How starved are you for your father's approval that you would get up in front of a group of people and accuse the transgender community of terrorism? This is what he said over the weekend. He's saying, don't prosecute my father for violating, oh, I don't know, the Espionage Act or inciting an insurrection or attempting to steal the 2020 presidential election. No, the FBI needs to focus on the real problems in this world. It is transgender terrorists who he says, you just heard him say, transgender terrorists are the most protected class in America. How do you get there? How does somebody get there? 30 credible rape allegations against his father, two impeachments, countless indictments, and yet not one day in jail. So far, not one day in jail, but somehow members of the transgender community in Don Jr.'s poisoned world, members of the transgender community are the most protected people in America, despite being most likely to be beaten and raped by cops. Uh, They're less likely to find work or housing, some of the highest rates of depression and, of course, suicide among our transgender community. But in Don Jr.'s demented world, the most vulnerable people in America, the transgender community, terrorists. Please continue heavy-lidded Don Jr. Luckily, I don't snort cocaine like it's not my thing. I, I guess he was talking about uh, Hunter Biden and he, he 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 volunteered that he doesn't what? Luckily, I don't snort cocaine like it's not my thing. My favorite part of this. <laughs> you know, anybody who uh, doesn't snort cocaine doesn't make these kind of sounds. Luckily, I don't snort cocaine like it's not my thing. Yeah, I, I don't think he snorts cocaine. I, I don't. I, I Maybe he injects it. I mean, that's what people are saying. I, I would never. I don't know. But a lot of people are saying that Don Jr. is addicted to Adderall and cocaine. That's what people are saying. I don't know if it's true or not, but a lot of people, a lot of people judging by how he speaks You know, he's heavy lidded. He slurs his speech. A lot of people are saying Don Jr. is addicted to Adderall and cocaine. I don't know if it's true, but that's what a lot of people are saying. Luckily, I don't snort cocaine like it's not my thing. (laughs) What? What? Luckily, I don't snort cocaine like it's not my thing. It's not his thing. It's not his thing. No, being uh, humiliated uh, by Kimberly Gargoyle. Uh, BDSM. I think that's it, more his thing. Well, yes, that's definitely the sound a sober person makes. Ah, right. Well, 
the Republican Party, believe it or not, belongs to Donald Trump and Don Jr. Nobody comes close. This is Donald Trump's party. Asa Hutchinson is a former governor of Arkansas. And uh, he uh, he's running for president as the kinder, gentler, more reasonable Republican. He's a very kind man, Asa Hutchinson. He's not as distasteful as Trump. That's how he's presenting himself as governor of Arkansas. 18,000 residents of Arkansas got thrown off Medicaid because the sweet, gentle, kind Asa Hutchinson insisted that in order to qualify for Medicaid in Arkansas, you had to find a job. Isn't that kind and nice? He announced when he was governor that Arkansas wouldn't accept any Syrian refugees because Syrians are really clamoring to live in Arkansas. You know, they left Syria for a reason. Moving to Arkansas, I'm pretty sure would be a step backwards. Asa Hutchinson brought back the death penalty, kind and gentle. He waged war on women by signing a near total abortion ban that he promised would go into effect once the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade. He waged war against the LGBTQ community by signing a law that allowed Arkansas businesses and landlords to discriminate against the LGBTQ community. Yes, it is still legal in some states like Arkansas, thanks to Asa Hutchinson. It is still legal to deny housing and employment based on someone's sexual orientation. Very kind and gentle man. This is the antidote to Donald Trump, Asa Hutchinson. This is what is being sold to Republicans as decency. Asa Hutchinson, as governor, signed a law that freed doctors to deny medical care to members of the LGBTQ community based on moral grounds. Yes, it's very moral for a doctor to refuse treatment to a member of the LGBTQ community because you're a bigot. But Asa Hutchinson, he insists Donald Trump's return to the White House would be a recipe for disaster. There is no difference between Donald Trump and Asa Hutchinson other than the brazen corruption, right? I don't think Asa Hutchinson is as corrupt as Donald Trump. But this is not Asa Hutchinson's party anymore, even though he's just as hateful and bigoted and racist and homophobic and misogynistic as Donald Trump. This is not Asa Hutchinson's party. Because Republicans no longer want to sugarcoat the bigotry, which Asa Hutchinson, you know, he's a gentleman. He's old school. He sugarcoats it. He's a bigot, but he sugarcoats it. The Republican Party now is different. It's Donald Trump's. And these people, these Republicans, Donald Trump's Republicans want to punish our most vulnerable brazenly out in the open. Don't pull any punches. Here is Asa Hutchinson over the weekend at the Turning Points USA conference in Florida, attempting to gild a patina of grace and decency over a rotted out platform of racism, misogyny, homophobia and sadism. But the audience wasn't having 
any part of it. It's my, I am delighted to be here today to express my support for young people being engaged in the political arena and fighting for the conservative cause. I don't know if you could hear the boos, but they and he deserves it. The, the conservative cause, the conservative cause since Barry Goldwater has been hatred and destruction. But now, now, because of Trump, you must relish it. You cannot disguise it. Gone are the days of dog whistles, right? Remember Lee Atwater talking his deathbed confession where he talks about the the dog whistles? Look up Lee Atwater's death, uh, deathbed confession. Gone are the days of dog whistles. Republicans now, they want it all out in the open. They don't want it sugarcoated. And then it got even worse for this pig, Asa Hutchinson, who deserves to be treated this way. In the middle of his speech, the crowd broke out in a cheer for Donald Trump. There was enormous national pressure to distinguish essential and non-essential businesses. And whenever you... It's Trump's party. It's Trump's party. He is the front runner because Republicans want it all out in the open. They want blood because that's all that the Republicans can offer their voters is blood and and punishing others. You know, in the past for the Republican Party, income inequality wasn't so pronounced, right? People weren't as desperate as they are now. And so before it got this bad, Republicans like, you know, Ronald Reagan and Richard Nixon and, of course, the Bush family, they could act like they weren't hateful monsters, right? They would cloak it all in patriotism or personal responsibility. And most Republican voters played along because they understood that Nixon and Reagan and Bush couldn't say openly that they hated blacks or Mexicans or women or the LGBTQ community. But the voters, the Republican voters knew what Nixon, Reagan and Bush meant when they opposed busing, welfare and food stamps. But things have gotten really bad, especially for Republican voters. Half this country can't come up with a thousand dollars for a medical emergency. It's even worse for Republican voters. They have no money. These Republican voters, they know the government is never going to save them. They know this economy is never going to save them, save them. They know it's over. They know it's over deep in their hearts. They know it's over for this country and it's over for them. So they don't want to see uh, they don't want to hear dog whistles anymore. They want to see blood. That's what Republican voters want. And that's what Don Jr. and Don Sr. give the voters. The, the Republican voters now are so desperate and lost they want it out in the open. They want hatred, bigotry. They want to see 
people suffering because that's all these Republican voters have left. It's the only joy left in their life. The, the thrill of someone else being worse off than they are. That's how Don Jr. thrives. That's how Don Jr. can can get away with warning everyone about these fictitious transgender terrorists. And that's what Trump offers. That's what the Trump family offers. The del- that's what Ron DeSantis offers. The delight in taking it out on others. No policy, no promises to make anybody's life better, only promises to make someone else's life worse. There is no longer any artifice in the GOP. This is now the party of hatred, sadism, bigotry and punishment. That's all. Here is Donald Trump with Maria Bartiroma on Fox News. He was asked about the debates. Now, the debates are only five weeks away. The first Republican debates, I think they're going to be in Wisconsin. I think they're going to be on Fox News. It's August 23rd. I mean, this election is happening. And Trump has refused to pledge support for whoever is nominated by the Republicans. And that automatically disqualifies him from participating in the debates. But if he really wanted to participate in these debates, he could do what Chris Christie is doing and lie, right? Chris Christie has publicly declared he would never support Trump if he's the Republican nominee. But to get on that debate stage, Chris Christie lies and said that he would support whoever is the candidate. Christie is lying. And here is Trump Sunday on whether he will take part in next month's Republican debate. Will you be on that stage? Are you participating in the upcoming debate? Well, you know, it's a uh, quite an easy question normally. When you have a big lead, you don't do it. And we have a lead of 50 and 60 points in some cases. And uh, some of these people are at zero. Uh, Ron DeSanctis, as I call him, or DeSanctimonious, is down to, uh, he's in the teens now, and I'm at 50 and 60 and 65, and even I saw one today at 70. And so you're leading people by 50 and 60 points, and you say, why would you be doing a debate? It's not, it's actually not fair. Why would you let somebody that's at zero or one or two or three, you know, be popping you with questions? Right. Now, Trump is a liar, but he's telling the truth. He owns the Republican Party. He owns the nomination. Nobody comes close. Here are the real clear politics averages nationally, which uh, don't really mean anything. The the real polls are Iowa and uh, New Hampshire. But take a look at the real clear politics averages nationally. Donald Trump has 53.8 percent of the vote. DeSantis is in second place with 19.7% of the vote. So what is that? That's Donald Trump has more than twice the number of votes as DeSantis. Then Mike Pence nationally has 6% and Ramaswamy has 4.5. Vivek Ramaswamy, I'll talk about him in a second. He has uh, 4.5% nationally. Uh Then you get to Iowa, and this is more important. This is very interesting. Trump has 47.7 percent 
of the vote in Iowa. Uh, DeSantis has 23.7. So Trump has more than double what DeSantis has. Nikki Haley has 4%. And Senator Tim Scott, uh, 3.7%. And uh, Iowa's important. It's the first contest. It's January 15th, 2024. Not that far away. I mean, you know, in two months, this stuff starts getting serious. And Trump is more than doubling DeSantis's numbers. Mike Pence in Iowa isn't even registering in Iowa. I have to believe, and I've been saying this, I've been saying that Pence could win Iowa. I have to believe he, he will do better than these numbers. He's not even registering in the polls. I'm shocked that he's not in the top four uh, because there's a huge evangelical community in Iowa if you remember, Rick Santorum won Iowa in 2012. He surprised everyone. Santorum, like Pence, is anti-abortion. Uh, I don't know. I don't think I think you underestimate the anti-abortion vote at your own peril. I, I'm I still believe Pence is more dangerous than the polls show. There are. You know, he's a former vice president and there are a lot of establishment Republicans who won't admit it, but secretly prefer him to Trump. That's what I feel in my gut. But I'm wrong. I mean, I know that I'm wrong. The New York Times is reporting that Mike Pence might not even qualify for next month's debate. See, you need 40,000 individual donors to qualify for the debate next month. And the New York Times says Mike Pence is coming up short. He's only raised $1.2 million. That's shocking. I find this shocking that Mike Pence has only raised $1.2. DeSantis has raised $20 million. Nikki Haley, $4.3 million. Senator Tim Scott has raised $6 million. And of course, Trump has raised $35 million. I mean, it's shocking to me how hated Mike Pence is. I mean, you know, I hate Mike Pence. I'm just shocked that the millions of people I hate also hate him. I can't believe the people who I hate also hate Mike Pence. I guess Mike Pence, and again, I'm not writing him off. I, I still think he can win Iowa. I'm usually wrong, but uh, I still believe uh, maybe not. Maybe Pence's problem with Republican voters is he's too cute by half. Even the religious right, as stupid as they are, can see through him during an interview with Tucker Carlson at last Friday's meeting of the Family Policy Alliance in Des Moines, Iowa. Pence refused to call January 6th an insurrection. He said it was just a riot, a spontaneous riot, he said, that got out of control. A spontaneous riot, just spontaneous, where armed participants came with ropes and gallows to hang the vice president. Yes, a spontaneous Riot where the vice president of the United States refused to get in a limousine with the Secret Service that day for fear they would drag him into the clutches of Donald Trump, who watched the quote riot while telling aides that Mike Pence deserved to be hanged, 
unquote. Yes, it was just a spontaneous riot. Some protesters, they just got out of hand. It was spontaneous where Trump and his legal team hounded Mike Pence spontaneously for weeks in advance of this spontaneous riot. They hounded him trying to convince him to defy the the Constitution and declare Donald Trump the winner on January 6th. Yes, it was all just a spontaneous riot that materialized out of thin air on January 6th, where Donald Trump on January 6th told a heavily armed crowd to go to the Capitol and fight like hell. It was just a a spontaneous riot. It was a protest that turned into a riot. Mike Pence really is the worst. He is the worst. I'm just amazed that everyone knows it. I'm just amazed that everybody hates him. He is the worst. This is uh, Vivek Ramaswamy. Am I allowed to call him Ramaswamy? Because he is the definition of swarmy, Vivek Ramaswamy. I don't know uh, if I'm allowed to to call him smarmy. Uh, I'm on pain medication for these kidney stones, so I I don't know what I'm saying. Maybe I'm not allowed to call Vivek Ramaswamy Vivek Ramaswamy, swarmy. But he is swarmy. He is running for the Republican nomination. He's never held elective office, went to Harvard College, Yale Law School, started a hedge fund that's anti-woke, anti-corporate responsibility. He wants to abolish the IRS, the FBI and the Department of Education. He says if he were elected president, he would fire at least half the federal government workforce and put an end to collective bargaining for federal employees. He believes abortion is murder, wants to raise the voting age to 26, wants to end support for Ukraine, and says in exchange for peace, Russia should be allowed to keep the Donbass region and Crimea. And uh, he's doing slightly worse, just slightly worse than Mike Pence in the national polls. Uh, Can you see this? Ramaswamy has 4.5% of the vote. Pence has 6%. Again, this is, uh, these are the national real clear averages. Well, here is Vivek Ramaswamy. If I'm allowed to call him Swarmy, I don't know. Here is Vivek Ramaswamy with Tucker Carlson Friday night in Des Moines, Iowa at the Family Leadership Summit. You want to know what caused January 6th? Ah, okay. You know, Mike Pence said it was just a riot. Vivek Ramaswamy is going to tell us what caused January 6th. I think I know what caused it. It was a massive conspiracy percolating from Trump's Oval Office, a conspiracy that convinced millions of boneheaded Americans that Joe Biden stole the 2020 election. That's what caused January 6th. January 6th was caused by a president conspiring with lawyers, lawyers with dubious understanding of the Constitution. Donald Trump conspired with attorneys like Rudy Giuliani, Sidney Powell, John Eastman, who worked as a clerk for Clarence Thomas, Ginny Thomas, 
the wife of Clarence Thomas, Jeffrey Clark, a low-level Justice Department official who Donald Trump wanted to name attorney general in the final days of his administration. So Jeffrey Clark could stop the certification of the 2020 presidential election. January 6th was caused by former General Michael Flynn, who, after being pardoned by Donald Trump, worked on a plan for Trump to order the military to seize the voting machines. January 6th was caused by people like Roger Stone and Steve Bannon, who apparently coordinated with the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers to show up at the nation's capital on January 6th, fully armed. That's what that's what caused January 6th, I think, an out of control White House that try to con, that try to strong arm officials in Arizona, Georgia, Las Vegas, New, Mo- New Mexico and Pennsylvania to switch the results in favor of Trump while spreading lies to millions of low-information psychopaths that Joe Biden stole the 2020 presidential election. That's what caused January 6th. But Vivek Ramaswamy graduated from Yale Law School. You tell me what caused January 6th. Pervasive censorship in this country in the lead-up to January 6th. Oh, pervasive censorship in the lead up to January 6th caused January 6th. I see. Thank you for for explaining that to me. The people who stormed the Capitol, they did that because they were being censored. Like, you know, Don Jr. was censored in Australia with people not buying his tickets. This was all about censorship. January 6th This was all about their First Amendment right to say what they think. I'd say to write what they think, but I doubt any of those people know how to do that. Yes, this January 6th was about freedom of expression. That's all it was. These people were sick of the pervasive censorship that prevented them from hanging Mike Pence, that kind of censorship. The pervasive censorship that kept these hard-working decent Americans from using their First Amendment right to call for the murder of Nancy Pelosi. Good Americans who just wanted to speak their mind, but they were being censored. They weren't they weren't being heard. They weren't being listened to with their zip ties, bear spray, guns and knives. It was all about freedom of expression peace-loving, law-abiding American citizens who simply don't want to be censored. You know, the way Don Jr. was censored when he wasn't allowed to speak in Australia because nobody wanted to pay to see him. Vivek Ramaswamy, how do you get to this place? You go to Harvard, you graduate from Yale Law School. How do you get to a place where you're willing to say, that January 6th was caused by pervasive censorship. How do you get to this place? Don Jr. railing against transgender terrorists and Vivek Ramaswamy rewriting January 6th and portraying the more than 1,000 men and women arrested for destroying the Capitol, trying to kill Mike Pence and Nancy Pelosi some of whom, like the Oath Keepers and the Proud Boys, have already been convicted, convicted 
and are doing time for seditious conspiracy, sedition, seditious conspiracy. But Vivek Ramaswamy, he rewrites history and says January 6th was all about freedom of speech, law abiding Americans simply standing up for their First Amendment rights. How do you get to a place like that, Vivek, where you would say such a thing? Because he wants to win in the Republican Party. And it's all about denying the facts that are in front of us. Climate change denial, election denial, January 6th denial. Doesn't matter what the evidence is. Doesn't matter that the head of the FBI, Christopher Wray, a Republican who was appointed by Donald Trump, right? A member of the Federalist Society. It doesn't matter that Christopher Wray, the head of the FBI, has testified that Antifa doesn't exist. It doesn't matter that study after study shows that Black Lives Matter and Antifa played absolutely no role in the rioting and looting that took place after the murder of George Floyd. It doesn't matter if you're a Republican or you have a show on Fox News. Just call Antifa and Black Lives Matter just as dangerous as the people who, quote unquote, rioted on January 6th. Deny the truth. Keep saying Antifa and Black Lives Matter are terrorist organizations, that they blew up buildings after George Floyd was murdered. Keep lying. Say that there are transgender terrorists. It doesn't matter in the Republican Party what the truth is, so long as it satisfies your blood lust. Here are the real clear averages in New Hampshire for the Republican Party. Kind of interesting. Trump has 42.7 percent. Ron DeSantis, 18.7. You know, DeSantis was doing much better. He's cratering 18.7 percent. Chris Christie. And here's where it gets interesting. New Hampshire is important. Chris Christie has 4.7 percent. And then Nikki Haley has 4.3 percent. Now, Trump says he doesn't think he should debate because all these guys, he's right. All these guys and gals are trailing him. And he feels he shouldn't have to debate them. But here's the thing. Chris Christie is going to be on that debate stage in August. And I'm sure the debate stage is thrilled about that. Uh, Chris Christie is going to challenge Trump, whether he's there or not. Nikki Haley, she's running for vice president. She wants Trump to pick her as his vice president. But uh, Chris Christie's going to challenge Trump, whether Trump's there or not. And Ron DeSantis, you know, one of the myths about Ron DeSantis has been that he hasn't taken on Donald Trump. Well, Ron DeSantis is going to be on that debate stage next month, and he's going to take on Donald Trump. Here is a sample of Ron DeSantis going on the offensive this past weekend. Here's a preview of what Trump will be told to his face if he shares the debate stage with Ron DeSantis next month. He promised to drain the swamp. 
It got worse. He did not drain the swamp. He promised to build, have Mexico pay for a border wall. They did like 50 miles of wall. There's massive expansive still there. He said he was going to eliminate the national debt. They added almost $8 trillion to the debt uh, in four years. And of course, in 2020, he turned the country over to Dr. Fauci and those lockdowns and the borrowing and printing really sent us on a bad course. So... The question is, the, the, these debates are five weeks away. Will Trump walk away from this fight? I don't think he can. He lives for the fight. Now, look, I, I'm, I'm wrong about Pence. I keep saying Pence is going to win Iowa. So far, I've been wrong about that. Uh, I just don't think Trump can stay away from next month's debate stage. But I'm often wrong. I mean, that's all Trump has is the fight. So it'll be really interesting to see if he can stay away. Meanwhile, DeSantis is cratering in the polls and burning through his $20 million war chest. According to Saturday's filing with the Federal Election Commission, DeSantis has about $12 million left and it's forcing him to fire so far about a dozen campaign workers. More firings are expected. DeSantis has 92 full-time staffers. That's the largest number of employees among the Republican candidates. This is kind of interesting. USA Today reports that DeSantis, his war chest comes from large donors. Most of DeSantis's money is from rich people pledging the maximum amount by law, which is different from Donald Trump whose war chest has been filled by small donors. And USA Today points out that candidates who rely on lots of donors giving small amounts of cash are more likely to thrive in both the primaries and the general election. Hard to believe, but Donald Trump, it is a grassroots campaign. People who have no money are donating to somebody who claims to be a billionaire. You can't get any dumber than that. Well, DeSantis is running on bigotry because he can't run on his record. Uh, I've been over this countless times. Uh, DeSantis is a failure on COVID, crime, education, health care. DeSantis's record is abysmal. Again, I've gone over this countless times. Highest crime rate in America is in Mr. Law and Order's Florida. Uh, COVID deaths, disaster with the COVID. Uh, worst health care, uh, among the worst health care in America. Worst, uh, I think Florida has the largest number of high school dropouts. Uh, he's a failure. All he offers is his imaginary war on the woke. All he offers is persecution of black people and members of the LGBT community. Now, if you listen to the Republicans, they will lie and say inflation is getting worse. Uh, it's not. Inflation was bad last year. It was the worst it had been in 40 years. But inflation seems to be tamed with the annual inflation rate now down to 3% as opposed to last year when it was around 9%. But the Republicans, they keep insisting there's rampant inflation. 
due to all that government spending. It's a lie. Even, you know, government spending has nothing to do with this inflation. That's according to the Federal Reserve. Government spending, no relation to uh, rising costs. You know where inflation isn't being tamed? Florida. The highest inflation rate is in Florida. Cities like Florida, uh, cities like uh, cities like uh, Tampa and Miami and Florida are double the national average. So DeSantis can't even run on inflation. And one of the leading drivers of inflation in Florida is climate change. You know, the thing that Ron DeSantis says isn't real in Florida, thanks to climate change. Homeowner insurance costs on average $6,000 a year, as opposed to the national average, which is $1,700 a year. People in Florida can't get home insurance because of climate change, right? The hurricanes are more intense, causing more destruction. 15 insurance companies in Florida have gone belly up in the past 23 years because the hurricanes and the flooding are getting worse. But Ron DeSantis, he doesn't care because he's there to protect the fossil fuel industry. He has passed two laws in the past two years. One forbids Florida's state pension funds from divesting themselves of fossil fuel investments, a tool of the oil companies, and more. I mean, this is just outrageous. He signed a law last year that forbids cities in Florida from switching to renewable energy, right? Florida is like ground zero for climate change. Florida is going to be underwater in about 10 years. It'll finally be a blue state, but it'll be underwater. Uh, and Ron DeSantis doesn't care. He's beholden to the oil companies. And he literally signed a law that forbids cities from switching to renewable energy. He literally signed a law that forces, you know, Mr. State's rights, but not city rights, I guess. He literally signed a bill that insists that Florida cities must keep using fossil fuels, he signed a bill. And this bill, no surprise, sponsored by the oil and gas lobbyists. This is why the Republican Party belongs to Donald Trump. Uh, you know, it, 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 it's if they weren't killing us, literally killing us, it would be funny. Well, day 511 of the war in Ukraine. Remember, we were told it would be over in a couple of weeks. They always say that whenever there's a war. I don't talk enough about the war in Ukraine because I know we're not being told the truth. And I don't know what the truth is other than we're being lied to. I know that's the truth. I know everybody's lying to us. I have some theories about what this war is about, at least what Joe Biden thinks it's about. I think Putin and his oligarchs, I know they stole vast sums of money from Russia. They offshored it. 
From what I've read, Putin and his cronies have parked as much as two thirds of Russia's GDP in foreign banks. And I'm pretty sure they own way too many Republican politicians, probably a few Democrats. I think they own the Republic. The Republicans are owned by Putin. And I think Putin owns just enough Republican politicians for uh, the Mueller investigation uh, to actually expose it. I don't think the system here in America could survive that kind of stress to reveal how deeply entrenched the Russian mafia money is in our economy. I know America is run right now by self-serving, money-grubbing businessmen, money launderers and politicians who are only loyal to cash. And I'm pretty sure the oligarchs, Russian, some Ukrainian oligarchs, I'm pretty sure they didn't buy only real estate in America. I think they bought businesses. I think they bought more than anybody is willing to tell us because America is the number one tax haven in the world. That's a fact. Read ProPublica's reporting on this. America is the number one tax haven in the world. It used to be the Cayman Islands, used to be Switzerland. Now it's America. This country is the number one money launderer in the world. If you have dirty money, our banks will clean it for you. And it just doesn't stop with the banks. Real estate will clean will clean your money. Our businesses will clean your money. So we're talking about a system where the heads of our major banks and our politicians are all cleaning filthy money from Russia. And uh, so I know that Putin and other oligarchs own a good chunk of the Republican Party. But for anyone to really keep saying that, it's too much for our system to handle. I think Obama knew this. I think that's what uh, I think that's why they began. They opened the investigation into uh, Donald Trump during the Obama administration. And I think Biden knows this. I think he's from Delaware, which is one of the biggest money laundering operations in the world. I think he knows about Russian money and and how it's permeated our system. So I think the war in Ukraine is not so much about NATO expansion or stopping Putin from invading the East. I think Biden is fighting this war because he thinks and I'm not saying he's right This is what I think Biden thinks. I think Biden believes this war in Ukraine is necessary to destroy Putin in order to save Western democracy. I'm not saying he's right. I'm saying this is what Joe Biden believes. I think Joe Biden believes that we must destroy Putin because he owns too much of the West. Again, I'm not saying Biden, Obama, who believes this, and Blinken, our secretary of state, I'm not saying they're correct. I'm saying this is how they justify 
giving all those weapons to Zelensky. I think they think we must fight Putin in Ukraine to destroy him in order to save Western democracy. Because they know Putin owns way too many people, much too much real estate, way too many businesses and banks in the West. We know Putin owned Trump. We know Putin owned a large swath of Republican politicians. That's why so many Republicans are insisting we stop funding Zelensky. That's how I see this war. Uh, now, there are still Republicans, people like Mike Pence, who are not beholden to Putin, I don't think, and they want to keep supporting Ukraine. But there are way too many on the right, people like Tucker Carlson, who openly root for Putin, who insist that Ukraine is a Nazi state and that Christians in Ukraine are being arrested, which is partly true. Christians are being arrested in Ukraine, mostly members of the Russian Orthodox Church. Uh, they're being arrested because they've been brainwashed by Patriarch Kirill of Moscow. He's the leader of the Russian Orthodox Church. Patriarch Kirill has openly said it is a noble cause to die on the Ukrainian battlefield fighting for Mother Russia. And there are members of the Russian Orthodox Church in Ukraine. So Ukraine is cracking down on some of these Christians. Is it religious persecution? I don't know. Do disloyal Ukrainians automatically get a pass because of their religion? I mean, if you've heard the speeches of Kirill, the head of the Russian Orthodox Church, uh, you might be a little frightened of some of the leaders of the Russian Orthodox Church living in Ukraine. I don't know. I don't know. The war in Ukraine, I do know, is a disaster. I do know that I don't trust anyone. I don't trust anyone who's rooting for Putin. And I don't trust anyone who thinks the answer to all this is giving Zelensky more weapons instead of dragging Vladimir Putin to the peace table. There are other ways to stop Putin from destroying the West other than fighting him in Ukraine. If Joe Biden, and I do believe that he sees Putin as an existential threat to Western democracy because his tentacles, his financial, Putin's financial tentacles reach so deep into our corrupt economic and political systems. I genuinely believe that Joe Biden believes that fighting Putin in Ukraine will destroy Putin and save Western democracy. But there are other ways to destroy Putin. For example, a Justice Department that digs into all these tax havens here in America, like Joe Biden's Delaware. If we had a Justice Department that opened up the books in South Dakota and Nevada and started prosecuting bankers who are laundering Putin's money, that's a, an easier way, a, a more peaceful way to destroy Vladimir Putin and save Western democracy. 
The problem is, and Joe Biden won't tell you this, Robert Mueller, when he conducted the investigation into Trump's money laundering for Vladimir Putin, nobody is willing to tell us that America's entire economy now is undergirded by dirty money. Like I said, we're the number one tax haven in the world. We are the number one money launderer in the world. It's what props up all those real estate prices. It's what props up the stock market. If we would prosecute the bankers and the real estate companies who launder Russian money here in America, we could destroy Putin. But that would cut into Wall Street's core business model. And like I said, the price of real estate would come crashing down if it weren't being propped up by dirty money. I live in New York City. This entire Manhattan real estate is propped up by the money from oligarchs. It's all about money laundering here in New York City. You cut off the flow of dirty money here in Manhattan, everybody would could afford to buy an apartment in New York City. But we're not going to do that. We're not going to do that. We have to destroy Putin militarily in Ukraine because doing it militarily means more money for our weapons manufacturers. Nobody will tell us the truth about Ukraine, including Anthony Blinken and Joe Biden. There are people who are dedicated to keeping the war machine going. You know, if we had a Justice Department that dug in to the money laundering and the tax havens here in America, we could bring Putin to his knees. But that's not what our government is willing to do. There are people who want to keep the military industrial complex humming along. And there are Republicans who want to keep it humming along. Mike Pence and Chris Christie and Chris Christie. I, I want to play this clip because he came up with an incredibly imaginative justification over the weekend. It, this was brilliant. This is uh, how Chris Christie justifies uh, funding the war in Ukraine. Uh, again, this is all about saying whatever it takes to keep the war machine humming. But this is Chris Christie. Uh, if it weren't so craven, I'd call it brilliant. This is a proxy war with China. <laughs> Did you hear that? Let me play that again. This stuff is a little low today. What is Ukraine? What is the war in Ukraine? This is a proxy war with China. Ukraine? This is how Chris Christie is selling the war in Ukraine to Republicans as a proxy war with China. Okay? This is how Chris Christie plans to thread the needle with Republican voters. Because, you see, Republicans love Russia. They get their money from Russia and they hate China, right? Trump hates China. So Chris Christie is selling the war in Ukraine by insisting, no, this isn't a proxy war against Putin. We like Putin. 
This is a proxy war against China because we hate China. You got to love this. I mean, Chris Christie knows most Republicans wanted to fund Ukraine because most Republicans are financially beholden to Putin. And the Republicans love Putin because Putin is a white Christian nationalist. He's an authoritarian who persecutes the LGBTQ community. He is everything the Republicans love. They see him as the great white hope for Asia. But Chris Christie wants to keep the war going in Ukraine. So he says, no, no, this isn't our friend Russia. We're fighting China in Ukraine. We're fighting China because Trump and the Republicans hate China and love Russia. Go on, Chris Christie. The Chinese are funding the Russian war by buying Russian oil. They're coordinating with the Iranians to provide lethal weapons uh, to the Russian army. And we could decide when to have this conflict. Right now, the Ukrainians are willing to fight this fight for themselves if they have our support to be able to win it. Um, if the Chinese watch us back away from Ukraine, as Tucker Carlson and others would uh, advocate, believe me, the next move will be Taiwan. It's incredible how we sell war to the American people by any means necessary. Sell the war. Forget that Putin invaded Ukraine. Forget the Russian separatists who seize Crimea and are fighting to make the Donbass region part of Russia. Forget Russian meddling in our elections and Russia cracking down on dissent, Putin killing his political enemies. Forget all that. We're, this is a war against China, who I don't believe uh, has invaded uh, Ukraine. And I also believe has been trying to drag Biden and Putin to the bargaining table. But sell the war by any means necessary. Sell it as a proxy war against China, because when it comes to keeping a war going, people like Chris Christie will say whatever it takes. Doesn't matter what the truth is. Just keep the American people stupid and terrified and no claim is too outlandish when it comes to, to keeping a war going. When it comes to America spending more than a trillion dollars a year on weapons, you cannot be brash enough in your justifications for keeping a war going. Lie. It doesn't matter. Lie. The American people, when it comes to war, will believe anything like oh, I don't know, that Iraq attacked us on 9-11 and had weapons of mass destruction. Just say it. If it means going to war, most Americans will believe it and our media will report it. It doesn't matter what the truth is when it comes to war. Here in America, we have to keep the killing machine humming right along. I mean, that is just... An amazing talking point that Chris Christie unveiled that this is now a proxy war against China. We have to fight China in Ukraine. That's uh, doesn't matter what the truth is. Uh, I don't know what the answer is to Ukraine. That's why I don't talk about it that much. All I know is everybody's lying to us. I do know 
that if the American government really wanted Putin to stop meddling in our elections, we'd make it impossible for our banks and real estate magnates to launder Putin's money. But then that would cut into J.P. Morgan's J.P. Morgan Chase's profits. It would cut into Jared Kushner's profits. And we can't have that. I don't know what the answer is in Ukraine. I just know that any time, every time there's war and bloodshed, it's because somebody is getting richer and everything we're told is a lie. I'm going to vote for Biden. I have no choice. But when it comes to Ukraine, I know Biden's a liar. I know where he spends his Thanksgiving with David Rubenstein, head of the Carlisle Group, one of the largest war profiteers in the world. I don't know what the answer is to Ukraine. I do know there are other ways to destroy Putin besides relying on weapons. But we will never, ever use anything but weapons. Because here in America, we are convinced there's no profit in justice, no profit in peace. And that's why we're so effed. That's why we're so effed, because there's so much profit in justice and so much profit in peace. I'm David Feldman reminding you to stay strong and protect the weak.